That was good. <laughs> Simon says, take out your Bibles. Uh, no, actually he doesn't. Simon says, take out your billfold. And inside your billfold, you might find a $1 bill. And if you do, take out a $1 bill. Because our sermon today is going to be built around what is written on a $1 bill. Now, I suspect that most of you have never looked carefully at a $1 bill. And probably the main reason that you have not done so is because you are not very good at speaking Latin. But if you look at a $1 bill on the back side and you see a picture up here, if you don't have one, I can give you a dollar bill. Anyone need a $1 bill? Okay. Um, so Silas, you need a $1 bill. There we go. Um, for those of you who can have a dollar bill in your pocket or you can look on here. Now, there are actually four statements written on a $1 bill. And you probably are only familiar with one of them, the one you see right in the center, in God we trust. But that's, only, that's the only one in English. There are four of them. The other three are in Latin. And I suspect you've never looked at them, but today you're going to because this is what the sermon is all about. These four statements in English and in Latin are going to form the four parts of our sermon this morning. The first one you see is the official model, motto of the United States of America. It began actually in 1956 in my lifetime, and that is, in God we trust. This was um, not the model, motto of our country until that year, 56. Before that, it was another one of the statements that you find on a $1 bill. If you look at the, the eagle on the right side and out of its mouth, oh, thank you, uh, thank you, it's got E pluribus unum. Now, we know that. That used to be the motto of the United States until 56, but then it was changed. And e pluribus unum means out of many, pluribus, one. Out of many, one. That's what that one means. Now, if you look at the other side of the $1 bill, you see that pyramid with the eye on top of it. And what you'll find on top of it is, uh, is what's, um, if you can see it, and I can hardly see it myself, but it says, Anuit Septus, there. And then if you go beneath the pyramid, it's got Novus Ordo Seclorum. Now, of course, those of you who took Latin, you know exactly what that means. For the rest of us, I'll translate for you. The one Anuus Septus means, He favors our undertakings. And the he is understood to be God. And um, this is what we put on our dollar bill. He, God, favors our undertakings. And then if you look at the other one, uh, Novus Ordo Seclorum, this first was put into our language in 1782. And it has been mistranslated as New World Order. That's not exactly what it means. It is, actually means the beginning of a new era. And of course, when our, our, our nation was begun back at the beginning, people believed this is the beginning of a new era. And so that's what novus ordum seclorum means, the beginning of a new era. So since you've had your Latin lesson, let's now turn to the Bible because we're going to look at these four mottos that you find on a $1 bill. And hopefully, in the future, when you take out your $1 bill and you turn to the backside, you'll see, in God we trust. 
and out of many, one. And you'll see, he favors our undertakings and the beginning of a new era. You'll think of those things. So let's begin as we turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. That's where we're going to go this morning. Now, um, Romans 12 is one of the major shifts in the book of Romans. We've been going through it for months now. The book is extraordinarily logically put together by the Apostle Paul, writing to the heart of the empire, the greatest city in the world for thousands of years. When Paul wrote this letter to Rome, it was the only city in the world of a million people. And to my knowledge, it's the only city in the world of a million people for more than a thousand years later, almost 2,000 years later, before the second city in the world ever reached a million people. And that was London. The first city in the world was Rome. So this is the heart of the world. And he writes to the heart of the world, the heart of the gospel, the great message of Christianity, the apostle Paul wrote. He begins with showing how all people, no matter who you are, I don't care how religious you are, I don't care how moral you are, the greatest and best human being that ever lived has fallen miserably short of God's standards. Why? Simple. What's God's standard? absolute perfection. And for God to lower his standard one little bit, if he allows one sin, guess what happens? Heaven is ruined. One sin will ruin the whole place. God can only let perfect people into heaven. That's why Jesus got in easily. He's the only one that is perfect. Not a single other person. So not one human being, no matter how religious, no matter how moral, no matter how good, no matter how many good deeds, how much money you've given, not one person, not one, belongs in heaven. All have sinned and everyone falls short of the perfection, the glory of God. Ooh, that's bad news. But any honest soul, any human being that's ever lived that has even an ounce of honesty knows that you are so far from perfection that it's not even worth saying the word. So what do we give up? Oh no, thankfully God's never given up on us. So God is God, he's put together this incredible gift. How about this? If you give him your sin, he will in turn give you his righteousness. Whose? Christ's righteousness. That's That's the offer. Why would God do that? I mean, why would God say, okay, I'll give you all my sin, God, and we, and in return, you'll give me Christ's righteousness? Why would he do that? Well, I can think of one good reason. Because he'd like to have some company in heaven. He'd like to have some people there. And if, he, if God did not give us his righteousness, there's not one single person in heaven. All of heaven is, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, having sweet fellowship with one another for all eternity. Because no one deserves heaven. But God says, here's what I'll give you. I'll give you Christ's righteousness, his perfection, if you give me your sin. But that's not as easy as it sounds. Because first of all, to give God your sin, he doesn't mean a little bit of it. He means all of it. And to give God your sin means you got to be honest enough to admit that you have sinned and humble enough to give it to him and you can't give him anything to earn it. God says, I'll take that deal. But you'll have to trust me that I'll do what I say I will do. And you'll have to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't so to take all the punishment, all of the wrath of God that our sin deserved. That's what he did. 
and he offers us a gift. That's salvation. That's Christianity. That's good news. That's why the centerpiece of Christianity is God's grace. That means we don't deserve it, given as a gift, which we have to receive. Just think about it for a minute. If, in fact, salvation is simply a gift that we receive, not something we earn, not something we merit, not something we buy, ah, I'll take the gift and do whatever I please. Why not? He can't take it back. you You can't give back the gift. I'll take his gift, and then I can do whatever I want. Now the Apostle Paul addresses that issue. Because can you imagine... Can you imagine if you were a a soldier in war and there's people shooting at you and someone steps right in front of you as the shots go forth and takes the bullet for you and dies in your place? Can you imagine the rest of your life you go on going, hey, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm a hero, aren't I? No, you're not a hero. Who's a hero? The one who took the bullet for you. That's the hero. But Jesus just didn't take a bullet. He took crucifixion. He took the death and all of the sin that all of us deserved on himself. Let's say that person who took a bullet for you had children and a wife. How would you treat them for the rest of your life? If you knew someone died in your place, how would you treat them? Would you say bad things about them? I don't think so. What if one of the child of this person who took your life said, you know, I I, I don't have enough money for school. We just say, hey, forget it. I'm going on a trip to Bali Bali. No, you wouldn't do that. Are you that hard-hearted? That someone who gave their life for you, you wouldn't, out of gratitude, try to give back to them? Are you kidding? Would you actually do that? No. But that's what we do to God all the time. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for us, and he says, would you do this for me? He says, hey, no. I'm watching Oprah. I'm... I'm I'm going to do what I want. But we do it to God all the time. We think nothing of it. I don't. You don't. That's called sanctification. The Apostle Paul says, okay, how do you grow as a Christian? And it's not by works. It's not by, okay, i got to please God now. No, no. He already is pleased with you. He gave his son for you. But now the way we live our lives is out of gratitude to God for what he's done for us. And then the Apostle Paul, in the last three chapters we've dealt with, 9, 10, and 11, he addresses the subject, what about God's chosen people, the Jewish people? And then he addresses that. But now today, in chapter 12, he's going to say, okay, I've given you lots of theology, but now I'm going to give you some practice. This is what you do with what you've been taught. And here's how it begins. The first one, and our first motto on the $1 bill, in God we trust. And here's our memory verse for the month, therefore. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Before God tells us what to do, he's going to do it again. This is always God's practice. He never puts the cart in front of the horse. The the cart is what we do. The horse, the engine, is why we do it. God always puts the horse in front of the cart, never the cart in front of the horse. Religion puts the cart in front of the horse. Christianity always puts the horse in front of the cart. And here's the horse. 
I beg you. Now, God could have said, Paul could have written some very, very different words. He could have said, I command you. I demand you. Listen up. I'm warning you. Get your act together. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He says, I beg you. I beg you. Please. He doesn't command. He pleads. I beg you, therefore, idiots. I beg you, therefore, you people who don't follow God. I beg you, therefore, pagans. Is that what he says? He says, I beg you, therefore, brothers and sisters, part of this God's family. I beg you, therefore, which means all of the stuff I've been talking about, God's goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, his redemption, his, his propitiation, his reconciliation, all these things, that's the therefore. In light of all that and God's manifold mercies, that's the horse. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, because of all God's done and his manifold, um, his manifold mercies to us, here's how you behave. Give God your body. Why? Well, what is this body? This body of ours, the Bible says now as Christians, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't I look like one? Do I look like a temple? No, I am. You see, there was a time for years and years in the history of Israel where God's glory resided in the temple in Jerusalem. And before Jerusalem, it was mobile, but still resided in a place. But now God has planted his temple in every single corner of the world, and it moves around. It's us. Here's God's temple, me. The Holy Spirit resides inside of me. And, and you too, because as a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in us. We are God's temple. I beseech you, I beg you, present your body, not like the dead sacrifices we put on the altar in the tabernacle in the temple of God, a living sacrifice. And this presentation of your body as a living sacrifice is your reasonable service. This is what it means to worship God. What it means to worship God is to give your body to Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be used in him. And what does it take for you to do that? In God we trust. Because if, in fact, we don't truly trust God, that what he says in the Bible is true, we will never give our bodies as a living sacrifice. We'll hold it back. We'll live for ourselves. God says, don't do that. By the way, if I asked you today to do a word association with the word worship, I think you'd say worship team, singing, before the sermon, etc. That's how we would define worship. But for God, worship is much bigger than that. If God was to define worship, here's what worship is. Giving your body to be used by God wherever you are all the time. That's your true and acceptable worship to give your body. Well, it involves offering God our lives all of the time. That's what it is. And so, if I had to say a hymn that we sometimes sing in church that expresses this best, I would say, trust and obey. In God, we trust. And then how that works out in life is we take our bodies, which are actually temples, inhabited by the Holy Spirit, and we do what God would want us to do. 
Say what God would want us to say. Live as God would want us to live. That's in God we trust. But now we're going to look at that, uh, that Latin phrase, novus ordo seclorum, which means a, a new order for the ages. If, in fact, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, we should be different than people around us. Why? Because when we became Christians and when Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, almost exactly 2,000 years ago, when that event happened, he inaugurated a new order of the ages. The new order of the ages did not begin in 1776. That's very American, but it's not very biblical. A new order for the ages began in around the year 30 AD when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Everything changed. And here's the new order for the ages. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That is not what it says in the Greek. And I don't know why they don't do this, except they maybe don't want to have too much ink when they put together our Bibles. Here's what the word, every commentator you will ever find, the word conform is in the present tense. It says this, do not continue to conform to the pattern of this world, which implies that's what we're doing. And the truth of life is, for all of us as human beings, we constantly, without exception, tend our hard drive, our basic default in our whole being as human beings is that we will conform to the pattern of the world. And if we conform to the pattern of the world, who is our God? you both right. Satan and self. The Bible is clear. He is the God of this world. Satan is who we are following. Do not continue to conform to the pattern of this world. Why? Because we're part of a new, or a new era. What's the alternative? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now let me tell you the world that the Apostle Paul lived in, just very briefly. The mindset of the Apostle Paul's world, the philosophy, the, all the teaching in the universities of the day was derived from Greeks, Plato, Aristotle, Aristophanes, the playwright. All of the literature and the major um, mythology, all of it came from the ancient Greeks. And the way they carried out their daily lives came from the pragmatic Romans. Religiously, they were surrounded by the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, as well as rule-based religions like Judaism. Politically, the people were supposed to worship the emperor, and pers uh, uh, persecution of Christians was starting. And the way that the political rulers tried to keep the mobs in check was with bread and circuses. We do that today. We just are a little more sophisticated with our circuses. That's how they kept the people from rebelling. Um, uh, politically, um, economically, up to as many as half of the people in the Roman world were slaves. There were very few rich people, and there was no middle class, none. 
You were either very rich or poor or a slave. No middle class to speak of at all. And the culture was highly sexualized. I read this recently. A man named Robert Mounts wrote the commentary. And I went to check this up. I've been checking it up now for a couple of months. 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were gay. That's not accurate, actually. I've been checking up on it. 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were bisexual. Of course, we have people today tell us, oh, this is brand new world we live in. And I said, no, it's not. Nero, the man who's the emperor while Paul is imprisoned in Rome, he had two gay marriages officially sanctioned and supported by the taxpayer dollars, two of them. That's your emperor. This is not something new, brothers and sisters. This is something very, very old. It's not new. This is the world in which the apostle Paul lived and to which all of us, all of the Christians and us, were being conformed to that world. The God says, don't do that. This very morning, I went on the internet. Be careful of what you find. And I simply typed in to Google this. How much time does the average American spend on the screen per day? I brought mine with me. It's going to tell me how much time I spend, unfortunately, on this little screen. Do you know what the answer is? This is Craig T. Lee. He wrote his article December 26, 2020. (laughs) A survey finds, this is a quote, the average American will spend the equivalent of 44 years looking at some kind of digital screen. Now, if we live an average of 70 to 80 years, that means one half of our full life, this is how we're living. You go into anywhere. We're walking like this. We're eating like this. This is how we live now, like this. Here's the numbers. We will spend five hours a day on a laptop. I do that. This one stunned me for how low it was. Only 30 minutes a day watching TV. I thought it was much higher. We will spend four hours and 33 minutes per day looking at a smartphone and three hours a day on a gaming device. More than half of our life will now be spent for all average Americans right there. Now, and another one, this is Lauren Borak. This article was written January 1st, uh, January 26th, 2021. And this one said this, quote, we're now investing nearly eight hours a day on digital content. Eight hours a day. Okay. And do you know the latest statistic, by the way, how much time people spend in church? The average now for an evangelical is one hour every two weeks. So who's going to win that mind battle? Tell me. How in the world, how in God's name, are we ever going to think Christianly when we spend more time per day looking at digital content than we do even sleeping? How? How? Here's how. Do not be squeezed into the mold of the world. And this is how we're being squeezed. See, the battle is here. It's in the mind. This is how, and I don't mean you, I mean me. This is how we're being squeezed. Don't let the world tell you what to think. It is telling us what to think, how to behave at a tune of of 44 years of our lives. More hours spent on this screen than we spend sleeping by far. And God's word, it's the leftovers. 
No, don't do that. Why? Because what God has to offer this, or this new era, what God has to offer is what's good and pleasing and perfect. This is not good, most of it. It is not pleasing and it sure is not perfect. But God offers something that it is. It is good. It pleases him. And it leads to a good life. But we have to make choices. Is this going to be my mind? Or is the word of God going to be? We have to choose. That's our choice. Are we going to be part of the old order? Are we going to be part of the new order of the ages? The order that will last for eternity. Which era do we want to be a part of? I think I know which one you want to. I do too. Someone wrote this. Her name was Simone Weil. She wrote this. To be always relevant, you have to say things that are eternal. Everything that's not eternal is just going to come and go and, and, and recirculate over and over again. If you want to be always relevant, stick to what's eternal. And the word of God lives forever. Well, the next one, of course, you probably know because most people think this is the motto of the United States. Our motto is actually, in God we trust. But most of you probably think it's e pluribus unum. Out of many, one. Here's what the Bible says. This is verse 3 through 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, e pluribus unum, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, out of the many, one. How you know we live in the most polarized time in the history of, our, of our, our country and probably one of the most polarized times in the history of our planet? How do, you, how do you deal with this horrible polarization that not only takes place politically but also among friends and in churches? How do you deal with it? Well, God tells us how to deal with it. The first thing is don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. That requires honesty. You have a godly self-concept. You're willing to honestly look at who you really are without padding it or without going the other way or without thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, not exaggerating who you are. But, it says, but to have sober judgment. That means objectivity. We don't belittle our gifts nor do we boast about our gifts. We don't belittle what God has put in us. If God has given you a gift, that's a gift by God. You should enjoy it. It's part of who you are. We're objective. For Michael Jordan to say, oh, I'm not a real good basketball player, that's not humility, that's stupidity. He was a great basketball player. But it's not by accident that he came out six feet six. If he was five foot six, we would never have heard of Michael Jordan. Well, he didn't choose to be six feet six. That's by the grace given to him. He was given gifts that he did not deserve, but of course he put those into practice and he became a great basketball player, one of the greatest, if not the greatest ever. Have sober judgment. Don't think of yourself too lowly or too highly. And in fact, one of the great, the most consistent 
determiners of success in the job market of America today is what's called EQ, not IQ, emotional quotient. And the number one constituent of emotional quotient is an accurate sense of yourself, self-awareness. You know the truth about yourself. God says, if you want to bring together out of the many, one, first thing you got to do is you got to have an accurate view of yourself, which means you do have gifts to bring, but you're not hot stuff. And besides, those gifts came to you, came to you like from God. Think that way about it. And all of it in light of our view of God. So there are four keys here to the self, uh, a self-image that will bring unity, not division. Here they are. Number one, grace. You recognize, first of all, that you're the recipient of God's unconditional favor. Number two, humility. You see that we hold brokenness and sinfulness and depravity in common with all human beings. We're no better than anyone else, anyone else, no matter what they've done. Objectivity. We see ourselves with sober, neutral, fair, and impartial judgment and faith. We see ourselves in view of God. We are made in God's image, but we are not God. That's what God says. Well, finally, we get to anuit septis, the last of our Latin phrases, which means he favors our undertakings. And by the way, the word grace means favor. That's what it means. Grace means God's favor, God's unconditional favor. So that's why I took this last section And it talks about our gifts. And these gifts are all called grace gifts, which means these are gifts which come to us because of God's favor. Here they are. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, let me put these in my words, because when you saw them, if you're supposed to teach, teach. If you're supposed to serve, serve. If you're supposed to give, give. You go, what's that? Well, here's what it is. If you are gifted by God to prophesy, that means to have special insight into God's truth. Do it. Be careful that you submit to the stringent tests of Scripture and you never insert your own opinions. If you've been given special insight from God, be careful that it's always consistent with Scripture and you do not insert your own opinions. That's what it means according to to the faith. If it is serving, if your gift is serving, if you are gifted by God to serve, which as you could tell from what Alan uh, uh, announced, we need servants. What does God say? Get busy. (laughs) If God has given you the gift of service, get busy. If you are gifted by God to teach, and I know we have people here, step forward, step up. If you are gifted by God to encourage others, be intentional about it. God gave you that gift to encourage others, so make that a big part of your life every day. If God gave you the gift of giving, open up your hands and open up your wallet. If God gave you the gift of leading, don't be a show-off, a no-show, or a slacker. 
If God gave you the ability to lead, lead. Don't be a show-off. We don't need show-offs. Don't be a slacker. Don't be a no-show. If God gave you the ability to show mercy, don't gripe and don't give up. Keep doing it. Don't gripe at how hard it is. Because when you show mercy, it's oftentimes not reciprocated. Don't gripe. Don't give up. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what God says. Well, need to bring this passage to an end. In God we trust. We as Christians have placed our trust in God. And as a result, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our bodies and we choose to live lives of gratitude or worship. Are we doing it? Have we intelligently offered our bodies to Jesus' service? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Novus Ordo Seclorum, a new order for the ages. Um, we are now, as Christians, a thoughtful, countercultural tribe of Christ followers, a new order for the ages. So here's our question. Are we cultivating a Christian mind and countering cultural conformity? Are we consciously cultivating a Christian mind and consciously confronting the conformity into which we all will slip if we're not careful? Three, e pluribus unum. We belong to each other as one body, but we have different gifts. How is my body image contributing to the unity of the body? Am I in it for myself? Am I indeed humble and honest? and objective. And lastly, Anuit Septus. He favors our understandings, our undertakings. When we utilize the gifts that God has given us faithfully, he favors our undertakings. He will favor this church if each of us does what God has made us to be. So the question is, am I using my God-given gifts faithfully? In God we trust. A new order for the ages is who we are. Out of one, out of many, we're one body. And of course, God favors our undertakings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for what Jesus did. He paid it all, all to him we owe. And out of that basis, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would enliven this church with people, all of us, who take seriously our, our, our privileges our Christian privileges to serve others and to love you and to love one another. This we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.